and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with Rob Huddleston. Rob is a musician and songwriter who since the early 1990s has been making music in the vein of punk rock. First as bassist for the Richmond punk rock band Inquisition, then as guitarist and singer in the band Amberetta, as well as with music released under his own name. It was great to talk with Rob, get an overview of his forming experience in the late 80s, early 90s Richmond punk scene, touring, and ultimately the experiences one has when writing and sharing songs with the world at large. I had an awesome time talking with Rob, and I think you will enjoy our conversation as well. Enjoy. How did you get into like punk rock and like local or indie music? I've always been a fan of music. Um, I grew up in a house where, you know, I grew up in the late seventies in a house where my dad was a drummer, you know, records were playing in the house all the time. Um, so I, I just at a really young age, just really loved music and loved the radio. Um, and then as, as a teenager, I think being around probably maybe a late bloomer, you know, perhaps it was really like I grew up in the, out in the country. So, you know, getting a driver's license was like my ticket to freedom. Right. Um, so around, you know, 16, maybe late 15, if I could bum rides um, with friends, it was coming downtown to Twisters, you know, the local club and seeing Sunday matinees. And that's how I was introduced to a whole new, like just a whole new set of friends and people who, you know, from where I was living and growing up, I wasn't, you know, I had the, the odd man out in my school, you know, so there's maybe, you know, two or three of us that were like punk or goth kids or whatever, art kids. Um, but just being surrounded by people that I identified with as being, you know, more like me, um, it was mm-hmm. nice to be part of kind of a gang or a crowd and, you know, just experiencing music together. And so that, you know, that really introduced me to a lot of like new punk bands and, um, any band, it didn't matter what kind of music they played. If they were playing, you know, Sunday afternoon matinees in town, I I was there every Sunday. And then, you know, that got me also introduced through those new friends, um, more of the local scene, you know, bands like Four Walls Falling and bands that were playing. Um, we used to have this place out in Short Pump, which, you know, now is like suburbs and malls and <laughs> strip malls and things, you know, back yeah. in the back in the eighties, you know, especially the kind of mid eighties, late eighties, it was, you know, it was farmland, but there was, there was a place where we used to have shows in the loft of a barn. And, um, you know, that was the first time I met people like Thomas, um, and Mark who I, you know, later was in inquisition with. And, um, first place I met Taylor Steele and software while falling playing. And, you know, it's just like, it was, you know, just, I was in the deep end at that point. It was just like, as much as I could consume as many, bands as I could see and um, kind of adventures that I could have, especially at that age, you know, that was, I was just all in and it just kind of went from there. What year was that, that you uh, started going to um, shows and at Twisters? Uh, it was probably around 87. So for like records and stuff, like when, once you kind of like got in, into that, um, where would you get like records from? Was there like a specific store that like had kind of more like the pumpkin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was actually right across the street from twisters. It's now a subway, I think, or it used to be at one point, but, um, it's some kind of, you know, restaurant, but, um, there was a record store called Bohannon's and that was like the local place to get all the, all the indie stuff, all the punk stuff, a lot of goth stuff. Um, 
I guess at that point in the eighties, like a lot of stuff that you would see on the kind of first years of 120 minutes, it was all also a place, um, next to one of the big art stores on campus, it, um, up on broad street that was called the record exchange. And that was kind of the late eighties. And that's where, you know, you would find all the bootleg stuff, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter what like genre, but you would just find all the bootleg vinyl and t-shirts and stuff. And, and then plan nine, plan nine was around back then. I don't, I don't know how long it had been operating like in the very late eighties, but um, plan nine was also around. So those were kind of like the three big record stores. Wow. See, I, and then Soundhole, I mean, you remember, I'm sure you remember. Yeah, I remember Soundhole. Sound <laughs> like, that came out of Jukebox. Um, like I remember Greg's yeah, yeah. father owned yeah. Jukebox over on, like, Genito for a minute. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, and that's actually good call on that one. That was that was probably my first, like, local record store because I grew up right right out there in Chesterfield. So that was, like, that was the record store I went to probably every week that was, you know, close enough to home that I didn't have to make up some excuse or some kind of story or lie about why I had to go into the, into the fan and into the city. So yeah, that's how I first met Greg. And and then years later, you know, oddly enough, like being in inquisition, we were putting out records on his label, you know? So you discovered, you got into music, you're going to shows. When did you decide to like actually start, you know, trying to make your own with a band? Yeah, again, I think, you know, late bloomer, kind of uh, not sure that I, you know, especially as a young teenager, had a lot of, like, confidence or patience to learn to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. So I was probably a senior in high school when I bought my first instrument. It was a bass. Went to a pawn shop in the city and picked one up. Didn't know what I was looking for or looking at. Just knew I had to have something, and I maybe only had $100 in my pocket. Um, so bought something, you know, pretty crappy, pretty cheap and, um, just kind of started teaching myself how to play. And that also kind of came at a time where a couple of friends of mine, one who was starting to learn how to play drums and another starting to learn how to play guitar. They weren't punk kids by any stretch. Like I was, you know, kind of hanging out more with like an, like an art crowd, you know, I was like any, any kind of, um, art class I could take, I was taking, you know, I was like skipping PE or any of my electives were, were art classes. So I kind of had this, you know, like two groups of friends that, that had a bit of overlap that were, you know, really into like indie rock and goth and punk and stuff. So they were wanting to start a band. They didn't know how to play instruments and they, you know, didn't have a a friend who was willing to learn to play bass. So they just kind of convinced me to do it. And, you know, within a few weeks we were not very good at all, but willing to put ourselves out there and play a battle of the bands or whatever. So I think it was, it was just kind of, you know, I'd been wanting to do that for a long time, but never done it. Didn't have the confidence to do it and just found the right couple friends. And, you know, we were playing covers. We weren't writing anything original. You know, it was like we were, you know, learning REM songs at that point um, and maybe some clash songs or something. But then it really wasn't until I went to college, you know, I was, I was a freshman at VCU in 1990 um, my roommate happened to be a music major and he was really the one that kind of started teaching me how to play guitar. And we were total, like we were not at all into the same things or, um, same music or had the same group of friends or anything, but he was a cool guy and he was just like willing to sit down with me. And, you know, I kind of the same story with the bass. I, I bought a cheap pawn store guitar and 
you know, he taught me a few chords and I just kind of picked it up and taught myself how to play outside of that and started learning songs by ear. It really wasn't until I think 91, maybe 92, um, when it was actually Tim Berry that kind of reintroduced me to Mark and Thomas and Inquisition. Um, Lear had left the band. He was the original bass player, had left the band. And he was like, hey, you need to talk to these guys. They, they need a bass player. And I just kind of found my found my way into it. And it was, you know, we all knew each other. We had all hung out together for, for years, kind of off and on. And I think at that point, I just kind of, I think there was a tryout. I think Mark and Thomas came over my house. I was living in like a little basement apartment in the fan and um, came over and we just started kind of playing together, you know, kind of jamming, I guess, um, without any drums or anything and just started making shit up. And I think a few days later, they, they brought Russ over and asked if I wanted to be in the band and it kind of all jumped from there. I think it was an interesting dynamic because we all liked punk music and hardcore music, but we also all liked very different things at the same time. You know, I, I, I was kind of the one that brought in a bit of a pop history. You know, I was really into like indie music and especially in the nineties, like a lot of stuff coming out of, out of the UK and uh, you know, Thomas has a really eclectic taste and kind of introduced me to things like reggae. So it was, it was kind of a cool moment of all of us coming together around punk and hardcore music, but bringing different ideas or thoughts into it. So I don't know if you remember any of that like first record stuff, um, first full link stuff that we did together, but it was, pretty, touch awesome. the sun? it was pretty, um, the, uh, not touch the sun after touch the sun, the first like record that I did with the band and the full length was the broken songs. There's a lot of weird shit on that record and a lot of like, you know, experimental stuff. It, it really wasn't until after that, that we really kind of found our sound, but, and kind of what we really wanted to focus on doing, but super fun record, you know, really good times making all broken those, all these kind of, that was the one with like the poster fold out in the CD. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I heard that at Soundhole. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and that's kind of how we, you know, that was still very much like that was all night, you know, early nineties DIY was kind of everything. Um, you know, we were pressing those ourselves, folding the inserts ourselves and, um, you know, taking those to all the, all the record stores and putting them on consignment. And that's, you know, that's kind of how we all remet Greg kind of coming full circle back to that. And, you know, I think it was a year or two later, he was putting out that seven inch with us. That was the start of like some really great stuff. Like that was, again, that was us finding our sound and really having a kind of urgency around what we wanted to do and what we wanted to say. And um, our artwork started to really, you know, shift into the whole like cut and paste Xerox style. Um, and, you know, everything just kind of clicked in that moment with that first seven inch we did with Craig. So how long had you been playing bass when, when, when uh, you joined Inquisition? Yeah, really only a couple of years. I think I was 21 and I didn't really start playing bass until I was 18. So, you wow. know, again, late bloom. But, um, but I <laughs> yeah. think I was like 20 or 21. It was really at a time too, where I was, you know, I was maybe transitioning into or thinking I was going to be a guitar player. And so even a lot of that kind of weird experimental stuff that I was doing on broken songs and kind of finding my sound as a bass player, my style as a bass player was really like a lot of chords and a lot of like, just like heavy picking and stuff. So, you know, I was playing mm -hmm. a lot of chords and a lot of like really crazy melodies and stuff. And, but again, it just, you know, kind of all clicked. I think 
I think we were all all over the place with that first Broken Songs record, but by the time we got around to, you know, the Revolution record, it, it just all was making a lot of sense for us. And I think, you know, I think we're one of those few bands, Mark said it actually recently, like we're one of the few bands that their second record is way better than their first record, you know, and we really didn't right. find ourselves until we, were make, until we made that record, you know. You know, there was so much difference between those two records. Um, were you guys touring between those two? Like, when did you guys start touring as a band? Yeah, we we started touring around, like, we were playing shows, like, one-offs and, like, you know, a couple weekends around Virginia and maybe, you know, we were kind of sticking around Richmond, Virginia Beach, um, D.C. area and kind of mm-hmm. that's where we were really cutting our teeth, you know, um, playing out of town. Roanoke was had a huge kind of scene back then. Yeah. You know, bands like Swank and stuff. Um, so we were, we were sticking somewhat local, but we were playing a lot before the Broken Songs record. And then with that record coming out, that's when we really started touring. Um, you know, we even uh, like through the, the time when the band ended, like we were, Thomas and I were booking all the shows. This is like, you know, crazy to talk about or think about, but it's like, we were mailing demo tapes or CDs. We were writing letters to kids or clubs. We were getting on the phone or using like phone dialers, um, you know, that we were yeah, out of kids at Radio Shack, you know, so we didn't have to pay phone bills. Um, and we were doing all that on our, on our own, you know, book your own life was a thing that maximum rock and roll put out. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And like, yeah, we were, yeah. that was the Bible, you know, you just looked for that to come out every spring and it got to where like the first thing that we would do while we were trying to book tours, we'd book a show at Gilman. Like that was our, that was our goal every year was to go to Gilman and we'd book that show and then we'd figure out how to get there and how to get home. It would take us two and a half months to get there and back, you know, just because, you know, we weren't playing every night. We weren't playing like, you know, we were playing anywhere and everywhere that we could. So drives were crazy. You know, you'd you'd have days off, you'd have a week off because you couldn't fill, fill the gaps. So it was just like, it was, the struggle was, was real, you know, but the adventure was, was all there. So it was super cool. So I think, you know, we really started to, that Broken Songs record is when we really started to take things seriously and think like we could, we could get out there and we could tour and we could have people listening to what we had to say and what we were writing songs about. And that was super exciting, of course, you know, that was a time of first, like everything we did was the first time. It was the first time we went to California, the first time we went out of state, first time, like, I mean, I know you experienced this too, like the first time you sell out your local club, or the first time you sell out, you know, the club out of town and it's all like context is, is what it is, right? Like it might've only been 50 people is what it took to sell out the, you know, the basement bar at some, you know, college or whatever, but it didn't matter because that was, you know, you just, you just packed a place, you know? So all of those were like, were firsts and, and they kind of paved the way for everything we did after that. But it was, you know, like super critical important time I think in all of our lives to just feel like we were we were out there doing something and it was it was the absolute most important thing that any of us could could be doing in that moment you know you'd only been playing for a few years at this point um I mean were you just like yeah this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life like the second you started doing it or like I mean I think it, it was interesting I think I think it definitely was something that we recognized we wanted to do that we had to do 
we didn't know if it would be something that like how long any of it would last or how long or how likely we would be to like make a job out of it. I think, I think we were always of the mindset, like the minute this becomes a job, it's not something we want to do, you know, young and idealistic and all these things, you know? Right. Um, and it was, you know, at that point it was, it wasn't something we didn't make money. Like we made enough to get by. It was, you know, again, in the old days, it was like $5 a day kind of payouts and just hoping we had enough money to get, to put gas in the, in the van to get to the next show. Uh, but that's how we lived. And it kind of taught us, it taught us a lot, you know, just about how to, how to get by on very little and, you know, how to, how to just survive, you know, it was like, again, it was, I don't know, it was pretty amazing time for all of us. But I think as we started to experience, you know, some degree of success, if you want to call it that, like shows started to get bigger in some areas, and they were still maybe five people in other areas. So we were still, you know, even when the band was kind of ending or when the revolution record had come out, um, which I think technically didn't come out until about a month after we played our last show throughout that, throughout that time, you know, like we would, we would play to five people one night and, you know, a couple hundred people the next night. And that just felt like, you know, it can't get any better. Like it doesn't need to get any better. This was just, it was awesome, you know? Um, so I don't think any of us were really thinking about doing it like, as a job or making a living doing it, which mm-hmm. kind of kept it real. I think at some points, especially, you know, I know Thomas and I would get into debates every once in a while, just, you know, kind of the, this was also a time of like the really hardcore, like punk ethic and, you know, Gilman and maximum rock and roll were a big piece of this. And, um, sure. you know, kind yeah. of the whole, the whole discord scene, it was like, you don't play pay for more than five bucks and it's always all ages. And, I think at that point too, like I was, and this is where Thomas and I would kind of butt heads occasionally. And, you know, I was seeing things like, you know, bands that we were, we knew of or were friends with very young bands at the time, like um, anti-flag going on tour with rage against the machine. You know, I remember Thomas and I sitting in, um, in a bar in new Orleans having a, a debate about whether or not that was, that was cool or not, you know? And I was like, Thomas, you know, my point of view was Thomas, if we want to get this message out to as many people as possible, we should be looking for opportunities like that. They're taking advantage of, of an opportunity to increase their platform with another band that aligns with their message. And right. you know, we just didn't see eye to eye on that at all. So I think, I think that started a little bit of stress at times, but it wasn't, it wasn't in anything like in anything that, you know, cause the end of the band or whatever. Um, I just think we, we started, some of us started to have some different opinions about what the future could bring and what right. we might be, what we thought was appropriate for us to be, be doing or not doing, you know, um, that question of, you know, selling out is, is a critical question to be answered for anyone in, in a band, no matter how big or small you are, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, at least within like just within the dichotomy kind of, of or the world of punk, you know, there's bands that kind of like bring folks into punk and then there's bands yeah. that um, kind of just serve inside of punk, you know, um, and, and some bands can kind of almost manage to do both. Like, <laughs> like minor threat it would probably be one like they can bring, but they still kind of like, aim just kind of towards serving it but but there's bands like green day that like got so many kids into punk and like you know like that taking that message you know and and really i think it comes down to like record stores and stuff like that like a lot of just you know places out in the middle of 
the country and stuff, you, no one would ever hear your record unless you had like pretty insane distribution, um, which was kind of out of the realm for most, you know, punk bands. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that was, you know, I think that was always something that was even, you know, when after Inquisition kind of ended and, and Beretta started, like that was, that was always what drove us. It was no one's going to hear us unless we put the effort into going to their town to play, you know, ultimately, like, I mean, we killed ourselves touring with that mindset. You know, we like, we never stopped, you know, talking about like Thomas and I booking tours. Like if we were sitting at a truck stop on tour, we were booking shows for the next one. Wow. You know, so it's like, it just never stopped. And and we were like that. I think I, you know, I've often credited that to really what ended Inquisition was just like, we killed ourselves touring and we were too young and kind of dumb to know that we could or should take a break. You know, we got on each other's nerves because we were, that close together in a confined space for that many years. And we just went to the extreme, you know, we just ended the band instead of saying like, Hey, maybe we take two months off and we go do anything, but play music together. It just never even came to, came to mind, you know, that that was an option. It's hard to have relationship skills at that age. You know I mean? Like no one really does yet. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, And you know, true to form, like, I mean, we, Inquisition played our last show. I want to say it was like September of 96 and October of 96. Amberetta played its first show in Richmond at Twisters with Weston. And then December of 96, we were on our first tour. I think it was us and War Dance Orange, like touring around the Southeast together because that was something that Inquisition did. You know, we, we toured, it was like us and, you know, Avail was doing it also. It was like, let's, it's cold, let's go south. And we would do this like Christmas time tour in December. We would go to kind of the warm southeast, you know. Um, and, and that's what we knew. And to not do that in December was like the end of the world. So we just decided like, hey, this is what we're doing now. Let's, uh, let's start booking shows. And, you know, we were three months later, we were in Florida playing shows. Um, I gotta so ask we just, you. Again, we didn't so, stop. I, I was at the last Inquisition show. I think it was was a Biograph. It was Biograph. Yeah, right? it was with uh, with AFI and the P tanks. I remember you chucked that Rickenbacker right up in the fucking air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that you yeah, just being I, like, "I'm done with bass. I'm moving to guitar." No, I think that was just that was just the moment, you know. And it was just like, okay, this is this is it. This is done. And it was just in that moment that that was just the release. It was like, I'm just going to throw this thing as far and high as I can. And it's going to make some sort of exploding sound when it, when it hits the ground, maybe it'll, maybe it'll survive. I still have it. I mean, I had to repair quite a bit of it years later, but, um, but yeah, man, I, I, I love that thing. I cherish it. But yeah, it was just that moment, you know, it was just like, okay, this is done. Let go. It was amazing to watch. Cause it was like, you know, I, I I think you had released a seven inch coming up to it, so everyone was kind of expecting a record, and I, I don't think we were expecting the breakup. And then, and then, there, yeah, the record came out. Um, so, had you started Ambretta before Inquisition had ended? Well, at the, so towards like the last maybe six months of the band, um, Russ and I had started. I just wanted to like explore playing guitar and singing, and mm-hmm. I'd never sang before. Um, had never really like taken that responsibility of like writing lyrics 
and and a whole song um because we all kind of had our parts and we all chipped in and it was it was a pretty like democratized equal thing like we all contributed pretty equally and so i kind of wanted to explore that and we actually russ and i started a like little side band it was a three-piece called peggy suicide which was named after a julian cope record so going back to kind of like indie and art rock and stuff from the UK, right. like julian cope um, so I named the band after a Julian Cope record. We only played two or three shows, like a basement show. I think we played at Twisters once or twice. And that was me, Russ, and Chris Rupp. Most people don't know this, but when we, when Inquisition broke up or, or after that show, we tried a couple of different variations of what our next band would be like with different, you mm-hmm. know, like me on guitar and Thomas singing and, um, you know, kind of brought some different people in. We brought Lear back in and we were like, Oh, you know, Lear, why don't you play bass? I'll play guitar. And, um, none of it really seemed to work. And I think, I think it was too, too much too soon for Thomas. And, um, I think he headed out to California or something to spend the winter. And like I said earlier, it's kind of true to form. We just, we decided we didn't want to stop. And so we added Lear to the Peggy suicide lineup and we decided we were just going to start over completely and we needed a new name. I think Lear and I were sitting at Twisters. It was kind of our local spot. We were there every day, you know, kind of sitting at the bar drinking beer during that, you know, that time. Jerry came to us, you know, the the promoter at the club. He was like, "Hey guys, yeah, yeah. I hear you've got a new band. I need someone to open up for Weston in three weeks. You want the gig?" And we were like, "Well, yeah, sure. We've got five songs or whatever." Um, and he's like, "Cool. What do you call it?" And we had no clue, and so he just kept feeding us pitchers of beer until we left the place with a name so that he could put it on a flyer. And Beretta came out of that. Those <laughs> pictures of beer. Remember it being, there was a band called Picasso Trigger. I don't know uh-huh. anything about them. I, saw, I just saw there was a flyer in front of us behind the bar. And we just kind of fixated on like, oh, that's really cool. Like, you know, there's a, there's like this danger element, this art element, like, you know, this, artist plus a gun and we were like what's cooler than that well anything with a girl in it is cooler than you know an artist or whatever so we were like a girl and a gun how what kind of name can we make out of that and it just kind of evolved over you know 10 or 15 minutes and became Ann Beretta. so when you guys actually started touring like um how was that because obviously you didn't have you, you didn't have a record out right no we did well no, we didn't. Um, did you have we, a demo or anything? <laughs> we did. Yeah, we, we did. I still have copies of it. Um, we, again, very much like we had always done, we, we stayed local. We went to a studio. You know, we, it was like a basement studio that a friend of ours had. Mm-hmm. Reel to reel. You know, very old school. I think it was eight tracks. And we, just, um, and we just knocked out like four or five songs and did an EP. They were the first songs we had written. You know, the sound quality wasn't that great. We, of course, like, we took the cassette mix and just started duping cassette tapes. And we just took a cassette EP around with us, Xeroxed all the covers, had stickers to cover over the cassette, and, um, you know, just did it all ourselves. So we took that with us. It's just kind of like, here's something to have to sell and to to get the music out. Um, And we went around the Southeast. You know, we, we certainly drew from people, you know, promoters or just kids putting on shows in their hometowns that we knew from Inquisition. We, we referenced the ex-members of, you know, we did that thing because we felt like we kind of had to, it would help us get, you know, get some people at the shows. 
and we, you know, just kind of connected with a lot of the same bands, you know, Discount, um, Hot Water Music, um, you know, right. bands that Inquisition had played with, and we just kind of, you know, got them to help us put on shows and knew that between the name Inquisition being referenced and between, you know, having these bands headline the shows that they would be, it would be a good time for all of us. So that's kind of how we started and things kind of took off for us pretty quickly because of that, I think. With that help, you know, we came back home, we re-recorded the same bunch of songs and put out a, a CD on our own. And then I think it was like the very next summer, um, Tony, who does, he was from the band Swank, was living in um, Gainesville. We had given him the cassette copy on that first go around and he was, he started working for Less Than Jake, I think as their tour manager or something at the time. And I get a phone call from him like, hey, we're on Warp Tour. I think it was the first or second. It was like pretty early in the in the Warp Tour lifespan. But um, it was like, hey, we're going to be here. Vinny wants to talk to you. He's got a label. He wants to put out your record. And um, it was funny enough, like we had three different members of three different bands say they were starting labels and wanted to talk to us all at that one show. So we kind of, Lear and I bounced around from, you know, bus to bus and kind of lived it up with, you know, whatever that version of whining and dining was backstage at the Warped Tour, you know, just being, right. you know, kind of hanging out with bands. And, you know, some of these bands were bands that we had never met or, you know, we had listened to for years. So it's kind of exciting. And then seeing other bands, you know, like Social D and stuff, like just kind of hanging out and walking around. It was super exciting. But we came back um, making the decision to put out a record with Vinny with Fuel by Ramen. And, you know, we were immediately back on tour you know, we were, we had a month worth of shows, I think with, um, hot water music and discount. We had a break in between the second part of that tour while we were at home. And we, we just, you know, we powered through and recorded the bitter tongues record and then jumped right back out on tour. And, you know, that was like a whirlwind couple of years, like two years, I think. But that was, that was another like good time where we were doing a lot of firsts, you know, we were kind of, and we were, we were with our friends who were also doing the same thing. Like, our first and Beretta's first tour to the West coast was with hot water music. And it was also their first tour to the West coast. So we were trading off, you know, headlining spots. We were trading off who books, what part of the tour we were playing to five people again, five people, one night, a couple hundred people the next night, depending on the city. It was, it was just crazy, but we were just living it and loving it. And discount came along for part of the tour, a band called Hank Shaw came around for part of the tour. And this was just like, us making lifelong friends all over again. And it was you know, a pretty awesome time for us. That must've been a pretty anxious time kind of for you to like go out because with Inquisition, I, I would assume that at that point you guys had, you know, pretty good turnouts to your shows. And then to like kind of go out there and be playing like this new style of music, new songs, no one knows them. And like, you know, trying to kind of, you know, win over fans. That must have been kind of like a weird position to be in for a minute. Oh, yeah, it was Did terrifying. You... I mean, it was... Yeah, was yeah, it? it was <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, those, that first like year of the band, I was in a new role, you know, and, and Lear and I were, you know, kind of co-writing songs and we were like fronting the band together and things. But, you know, I was playing a different instrument. I was singing for the first time real it really and not doing it very well I, you know like just kind of making my way through it but and writing songs and different style of songs you know so yeah it was terrifying you know i mean i mean i remember 
the first show we played and just how badly my legs were shaking on stage just because I was, I was up there, you know, with a mic in front of me and it was like all eyes on us right now, you know, all eyes on me. So it was definitely a whole new kind of dynamic for me personally. And it was, it was terrifying. Um, and I think, you know, some part of that, like, was exciting and you know that it kind of just pushed me to at least try to do more and to do bigger and better um but yeah and then there's also the flip side of that is we had something to something to prove and something to live up to you know the band that a lot of people really liked um had ended and here we were just a few months later making the rounds you know so it was you know we were met with like who the fuck are these guys we were met with like a lot of excitement um we were met with you guys suck compared to your old bands, any possible feedback that, you know, someone could give us, um, they would give it to us, you know, that's a tough spot to be in. I mean, bands can do that to themselves just with a new record, you know, like if the new record yeah, is yeah. too different, you know? So going into that, like, when did you feel like you would actually, like you kind of had a connection, um, with what you were writing, like when you felt like, like folks were actually kind of embracing it, like how far into Ambretto was that? Um, you know, I think it was pretty quick, you know, like this, and I don't know, like kind of thinking about it, looking back on it, I don't know how much of it was like the time or the energy or just like the people that were listening to us or something about what we were doing. Like, um, things just, again, it just seemed to click for us and coming kind of riding the, the wake of, Inquisition in those first, you know, first year, I guess, of the band, things seemed to happen fairly easy that first year. They became much harder later on. Um, but things were kind of taking off and, um, you know, we were drawing pretty well. We were in a position where, depending on what city we were in, our very first time there, we were headlining shows, which was, you know, again, terrifying and exciting. Um, but then all the responsibility that we were feeling and I know I was feeling of like, well, the show kind of tanked. There was only 15 people here. That's, that must be my fault. It has to be my fault. Um, so there was, there was a lot to kind of process in that first year, but, um, I, I guess to maybe answer your question, I think there were, there were moments throughout the bitter tongue cycle, um, leading up to that record and then coming after that record, like that record, in part because Vinny from Less Than Jake put the record out, that introduced us to a whole new style of touring, a whole new Mm -hmm. level of bands. We were able to learn how to put on a pretty good show, you know, touring with bands like Less Than Jake, who like were just masters at the craft of putting on a show. Um, You know, we, we just learned so much from the bands that we toured with. I think they took us on tour for a straight year around, around the country a couple of times, you know, um, and then that introduced us to other bands that, you know, we were then opening up for like the boss tones and things, which if you remember, like in that moment, like 1998, you know, they yeah, were, they were huge. Yeah. you know, so we were suddenly playing, like we were the, the opening band in the band with the bus, you know, the, the bands who were in tour buses. And that was like a whole new dynamic. And I think that's when some, when, when we probably started to see like, Oh, there's a future here. These bands are like, they've made it, you know, they've got a bus, they're selling out to 1200 people a night. You know, at that point we thought that's what making it was, you know, and that's what we were looking forward to, or that was kind of our next big goal. And we got that 
some of the time, you know, we, we did some touring where we were playing to 800 or a thousand people a night headlining. And that was, that was like pinnacle moments for us. Um, but I don't know if in some of those moments we were connecting with an audience, like if it was us, if it was a song, if it was a lyric, if it was just the, the fact of, you know, 800 or a thousand people being in a mosh pit together, you know, um, I do remember moments that were like really, really influential to me, a couple, you know, specific, like I remember having a conversation with a young girl and I guess at this point, like I'm probably 24, 25, I'm probably 25, I guess this is like 98 right. or something. Um, with a girl who's probably 16 in Philadelphia who after the show came up and was like, was talking to me and it was super awkward cause I'm not the most social person. And you know, she was young and also not the most social person I think. And, and also, you know, when you're, when you're young and there's someone on a stage that you're watching, like that creates a whole different tension when you, when you meet them. But she came to me and told me that, um, one of our songs from the bitter tongues, um, like saved her life, you know, like I was going to kill myself and this song changed my mind. And at that moment, I realized a whole sense of like responsibility to the audience and, and for what I was saying in the lyrics that I was singing and just really had to make sure that, you know, the things that, you know, it, it was in that moment that I realized like you can really have a great impact on someone for better or for worse. So I better do whatever I can to make sure that if something is going to impact someone's life that I'm responsible for. I want to hope that it's going to be positive. And I've heard that story from a few people, which is kind of crazy to think, you know, cause I, I mean, sure. I can think back to when I was 15 or 16 and thinking that music was changing my life and saving my life. So to know that something that we did in a moment did that for someone else is like, I mean, I'll take that with me for the rest of my life, you know, like that. Definitely. I don't, I don't know a lot of people that get to experience that, you know, yeah, and it's weird because when that happens to you, I mean, I've actually had it happen to me a couple of times, and yeah, it's crazy, um, right? It's it makes me wonder what the fuck people that are just kind of like like other artists that are just like like huge artists that are just kind of just writing more kind of I don't know maybe reckless stuff <laughs> like like it kind of makes me wonder like where the fuck they're. I don't know. Yeah. I think it also in the, in those moments too, like it, 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 there's a whole different like stress that you put on yourself. Right. It's like, okay, well I want to have that sort of impact. So I'm not going to write these bubblegum like pop songs that don't mean anything. Everything's got to mean something and it's got to mean something, you know, grand. And, um, and that's a whole different level of stress. I think at some point I I gave up on that and I was just like, whatever comes out of me is going to come out of me. I want it to be good. And I want it, to be positive, but you know, like that level of stress kind of like really took a toll on me for a little while. Just thinking that everything had to, had to have that kind of impact, you know, and it, and it doesn't, you know, you, you kind of grow as a, as an artist or a songwriter, a musician, you, you, you think like, okay, it's, it's cool to have those moments, but not every moment has to be that, you know, and, and sometimes it's just about having a good groove and a good hook and getting people to move. And that's, that's just as cool in that moment, you know? I was listening to an interview with uh, that uh, rapper uh, LP from um, Run the Jewels. And he uh-huh. was saying, like, you kind of have to earn those moments. And so, like, yeah, they yeah. have a lot of true stuff that they want to put into this stuff. 
and it will connect in that moment. But he's like, you kind of got to earn it. So they'll kind of say some crazy <laughs> shit for the rest of it, you know, to kind of get that other thing in there. And it's like, because it is entertainment to a certain extent, you know, like, I mean, it, that's why people are listening. Yeah. They're listening to escape. They're listening to, to, you know, get their mind off something. And, um, I think too, like you, you can't expect those moments either, right? Like you no, can't count on no. them to happen, you know? And when you start trying to make them or force them to happen, or that's your goal, it, it's when it starts to become unobtainable and it, it just diminishes whatever opportunity your song or your craft has to make an impact. Like it's, it's, it's not real anymore. Like you're just right. Totally false. It's a facade. You know, you're just, you're like doing it for that reaction and maybe for some some bands and musicians, like getting a reaction is part of the stick and it's part of what they're they're going after and and that's just who they are. But you know, when you if you're really like forcing a moment, like I want to change someone's life with this song, like it's not going to happen. Like it's not it's not that's not how it happens. That's not a real moment that you're creating. That's you're just kind of making it all up. Um, you know, it just happens. If it happens, it does, and if it doesn't, cool. And ultimately, you have to realize too that you know, 10 people are going to hear your words or your song or your music 10 different ways and have 10 different interpretations of it or misinterpret yeah. it completely. And, you know, yeah. I think that in that moment, like that's, that's where that kind of really opened me up in my head to like, to really understand like some of my favorite bands and favorite songs, like I completely misheard the lyrics and misinterpreted the meaning of that song and made it my own. And in that moment, like, I realized, okay, that's what, I, that's really what I want. I want people, I want to tell my story in a song, but I want everyone to connect with it in a way that makes that story theirs, you know? So even the way I go about writing songs is, is not linear. It's not, I don't know too many people that I've talked to about songwriting where they're like, you know, they approach it in the same way I do, meaning like in one song I may cover from my perspective, three different themes, the chorus and the verse might not at all be about the same thing. And every verse in the song might be about, you know, very different things, but when they come together to tell whatever story it is that that song is telling, um, it works, but how it works for me and my interpretation of it might be about three different things, but you may hear it as something very linear and reflect on it in a way that's meaningful for you or for whoever else. So it's just understanding that everyone's going to hear something and take it in differently or be attracted to a different moment in that song. Like that's, that's for them. And I think that's a whole, that's like a very liberating place to be as a songwriter. It just opens you up to, to what you feel comfortable putting out there. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's something that's, you know, I think that getting kind of like trapped by things, you know, it's it's kind of, uh, typical with, um, you know, once you hit a, a point where like you start seeing like a big response from something and, you know, I, I mean, usually it, it seems to be like kind of like styles that people kind of get trapped with. Like, Oh, if we make, right. you know, this happier, faster, or, you know, slower or what, you know, like it, it, it's some kind of like arcane thing, but yeah, that's, um, <laughs> that kind of responsibility as a songwriter that like, I'm sure that can weigh in there. And then of course, and I'm, I'm, confident that you know this very well yourself but like there's there's times where the songs that people want to hear that they really respond to are not the ones that you like or enjoy playing or you've played yep. them so many times that it's like painful to do it again um you it's know, like that thing where we view it's not yours anymore like the second right. you put yeah. it out there it's not yours and so 
you know, that relationship that you have it too. Like you're, you know, you're looking over it. Like, here's this fucking thing that I fucking, you know, I fucked this up. I fixed this. And it's, it's just a, you know, it's just a, it's the end of a process for you, but to someone else, it's like this whole other thing. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's a couple songs that we've got that, you know, we're still playing and we know if we don't put it on the set list, someone's going to ask for it. We know, you know, when people are asking for it, like I have to be very thoughtful and like cognizant of the fact that I need to not say anything like I don't like this song, you know, because I've done it before. And I, I <laughs> looking back on it, I, it's, you know, like I've had someone ask for a song and I was just so over it. I was just like, no, I, I really, that's my least favorite song. I don't want to play it tonight. And then again, looking back on that, I'm like, man, I just really fuck somebody's day up. You know, like they came here, they paid money, they gave me their time to listen to that song. And I said, no, like how much do I suck right now? So it was kind of, you know, reflecting on a couple of those moments or like the jokes that we would make after the show of like, man, if I ever have to play that song again, I'm going to, you know, pull my eyes right. out or whatever. Um, and then, but then just realizing like, man, why do we suck so much? Why do you, you know, like these people want to hear this song. It means something to them, you know, be in the moment with them and like, understand you're here to do this thing for them. They're paying their money They're They want to be entertained. This song means something to them. Like, don't be an asshole just like suck it up and play the song that's that's why you wrote it to begin with you know this isn't about yeah. you like that's that's where ego gets in the way you know and and all of a sudden and i find myself you know truthfully like writing set lists that i want to hear and then you know having the other guys in the band come and go hey man like you know we really need to play this or you know we haven't played that in a while and this song we've the last four times we've played here we've we've had that on the set list so let's let's do something different you know and 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 that's a good, healthy debate to have as a band is like, you know, really kind of pushing each other, focusing on the fan or the fans or the people that are coming out and, and you know, giving them something different, but also giving them some something that they want and that, that they're expecting, you know, at the same time, like it's a it's a balance there. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a, you know, there's a dichotomy that's existing that is like, this is like a thing for you to like, do your creative thing. And like, that can be like cathartic and there's stuff that, you know, like if, if you're feeling in a certain way, you're going to be, and just because you just finished them too, like you're going to want to play like these songs that are now more important to where you are in your life. Yep. But then there's the other side of it of like, this is your audience and this is what they want. And, you know, I think both of those balances, I think is really hard for, um, you know, a band because it is supposed to be, I think, you know, give and take between the audience and the, and, and, and the band. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I've, I've read or, heard interviews with with some bands who like i mean they think about their set list in a way that i've never done but like very formulaic like okay the first three songs are off the new record then we're going to hit with like two greatest hits and then we're going to do a slow song and then we're going to come back with it and it's just like to that is another example of something that it feels very forced to me or like formulaic mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't feel natural i think for a couple of years, we actually stopped writing set lists. You know, we just got in a groove. We knew what the first like three songs were going to be. And then it was like, how is the audience feeling? We're going to play off of them. And we're just going to, in the moment, make the setup. And those years, I think, were the most fun for all of us. And, and probably some of the better shows we played because they were, there was that level of like spontaneity there that you never knew exactly what you were going to get. But we got in a rhythm of knowing like, okay, if we play this, it's going to 
it's going to jump right into this next song. And so we, we kind of had a, a way about us or a language, kind of this unspoken language on the stage of just being able to give cues and know what song was coming next based on how we were feeling, how the audience was feeling and, and how we were all kind of connecting in the room. That's beautiful when you can actually get to that point as a band. How big was your catalog at the point where you guys were doing that? Like of the songs you guys could play? That was probably that was probably around the time we put out um, Three Chord Revolution, probably around 2003. So we were, you know, we were like four records deep at that point. That was actually like the last studio record of original material that we've released. So what ended up happening with Amberetta? Because you, you guys are back together now, um, but why did you take a break? Or, or did you guys yeah, break well, up? Well... Was it ever officially? So, it was never anything official. Um, it was a lot of years of just like, again, heavy touring and just being tired. You know, we mm-hmm. knew better at that point. We, we knew we could take breaks. Um, <laughs> but I, and, and we did, you know, we would take the summer off or whatever, you know, like we, we would take months off and just kind of go on our separate ways and, and come back right into it, you know? Um, but I think around 2003, like we were stepping into kind of a new realm of like, we'd had a, a booking agent for years. So that was, mm. that was kind of part of our, our local crew, you know? Um, but we were stepping into this new realm of like having managers and, um, and other people making decisions for us. And I think we made, I think the excitement of jumping into that pool made us not think through some of the decisions we were making with some of the people we were working with. So, you know, we, we left lookout. We had, we had two records on lookout. We had left lookout. We were working with a label out of Canada. We didn't really realize that all of their budgets are, you know, funded by the government, which is great. But if you're not a Canadian band, you don't get any of that benefit. So we thought, you know, we would have budgets and we would be doing videos and we would get, you know, we we're kind of stepping up. We did get some, you know, video play um, for the song Angry all the time, but but only in Canada and Europe, like um, much music wow. and stuff like that, which was cool, but it put us in a lot of debt. It didn't really have like the impact that we had hoped it was going to have. And mm-hmm. I think at that point too, like we were struggling with our manager, like decisions he was making on our behalf and um, just getting tired and burnt out. And I think the last tour we did, this was also at a time where I know other bands that, you know, were our peers were experiencing some of this, you know, this is like the age of YouTube taking off and Napster right. and a, a whole new, a whole new audience who just expected music for free and knew that mm-hmm. if you were coming to town tonight and it was Monday and they didn't feel like leaving the house, they knew they could see a video somewhere on YouTube in a week, you know? So crowd sizes wow. started to really drop. You know, we dropped from, like, we finished the tour in 2002, playing to 1,600 people headlining in Louisville, Kentucky. And a year mm-hmm. later, we were playing to, like, three or 400 people. Um, God, and it was just damn. a whole new, it was just, yeah, exactly. It was just a whole new dynamic, you know, of, like, the crowds just suddenly were, like, the size was just, like, plummeting. Um you know, and that's not to say that that was every night, you know, even that 1600, that was like, that was the biggest crowd we played to on that, that whole tour. But, you know, we were playing to several hundred people on average a night. And then suddenly it was like, 
less than 100. Or, you know, our biggest show of a store might be 300 people. Promoters started to get, you know, at that point, too, like, upset with everyone because, like, you know, they were paying bands to come play, and then the shows are only, like, selling half capacity or less. And so the whole dynamic of the music industry was changing. Like, you know, bands were getting signed, but the labels were deciding they wanted, like, half of your ticket sales and half of your merch sales and giving huge advances but taking all of the touring money from you, which is how we all made money at the time. So there was, like, a right. whole shift in that moment. Um, and it just really wasn't working for us. And, you know, we did a tour that we ended up canceling halfway through, you know, we got all the way to like the West coast and like dates started being canceled or we would, we were finding out that our manager was, you know, like canceling dates or telling us we had shows that they were never confirmed. And Oh shit. Um, it was, it was like, it was just, so it was just kind of a really like grueling tour for us. Um, and also pretty disappointing. And I think when we came home, we just decided like, we didn't say anything to each other. We just kind of all, you know, went our separate ways when we got out of, out of the van. And I think we, you know, weeks later, we were like, yeah, I don't, I think this is it, man. Like, I think we're like, I'm just worn out. Everyone's worn out. You know, I, I'm not sure what we want to do. And I think in that moment, like, I don't, I don't know that we've ever talked about it, but I know that was another one of those like life moments of like, well, I don't know who I am without this band. I don't know who I am without you know, this persona of being the front man of a band, what am I going to do now? You know? And so it was, you know, like I had a pretty, like a pretty painful, like long year, you know, I was like, yeah, I mean, it was just crazy. Like, you know, I was just like depressed. I didn't want to play guitar. I didn't want to write a song. I didn't want to play a show. I think it was a year where I just didn't pick up an instrument. Um, I decided I was going to go back to school and, you know, get a degree and, and maybe think about like, you know, quote unquote, real job and all these things. And, um, and we kind of all stepped into that mode of like, okay, well, what's next for us? And it was all just kind of centered around, we have to find a real career and pay real bills, and you know, do all these like adult things that we've been putting off for so long. So I think all right. of us kind of went through our own kind of process of like separating ourselves from the life of someone in a band and then in a touring band. And then, you know, so that was 2003. I think the last show we actually played, it was either, I think it was the summer of 2003, we played like a local radio um, festival with one of the radio stations, you know, so it was, it was a pretty big show and like a big event. And again, we didn't, this was many months later and we just didn't say anything. It was just like, okay, cool. That was fun. That was the only thing we had booked when we came home from that tour in like January, I think it was. And after that, we just kind of slid away for a little while. We didn't really do anything for probably five years. I think it was 2008 before we, we decided like, Hey guys, we're really all missing this. Let's, let's do something again. And, you know, we just, since then we've just been doing like one-off shows, you know, we'll a couple times a year, we'll go out of town and we'll play some festivals, um, you know, like the fest or um, Pusa fest up in Canada or something. We'll, we'll kind of do some fly dates here and there, but, but it, it's kind of removed all of that stress and burden. Like we do it for fun again. You know, we know we're not paying our bills with money from shows or from touring. We don't have that kind of burden of um, of making a living. So we just, we have fun. And in that moment, that's when, you know, we kind of all decided like, okay, this is this is where we're at and this is how we're going to do it moving forward. It's just, you know, a couple of shows here and there a year. 
something comes our way, we'll say yes, you know, if it makes sense and the timing works out. And, you know, so we've done that for since 2008. And the only real touring we've actually done that would that would be considered a real tour in 2012. Um, and throughout this time, I had also started, you know, doing the like solo records or whatever you want to call it again. Um, although all of the guys play on those records and, um, you know, we just, it's under a different name or it's kind of perceived to be my solo stuff, but, but it was still the same band. We were just playing a different style of music with, with that. The Chimborazo record, the um, last solo record I did, it was a batch of songs that I had written. Like we had started playing as that band. Um, I wanted to just do more than have an acoustic guitar and just kind of stand on stage by myself. I was, I was missing, which I'd been doing for a few years at that point, but I was missing being with the guys. So we just started playing like a full band version of those songs and having fun doing that. I think that kind of inspired all of us to do, to do more. And it really wasn't until 2012, I actually got, you know, I got an email or a call or whatever from, someone in Germany putting on a festival and asking if I would come over to play to just do a solo set. And this just felt like for me, the money they were offering, you know, of course, like festivals in Europe, they, they pay really well and they cover your expense to fly over and stuff. A lot of them. So it was, it was an opportunity that, you know, I could go over to Germany by myself and bring like one person with me maybe um, for a weekend and play one night or right. for the, the the amount of money that they were giving me, I was like, hold on a second. Hey, guys, do you guys want to go to Europe? We haven't toured in, you know, almost a decade at that point. Um, I was like, you know, hey, we can call some agents over there. We can we can book a tour. This one show will pay for us to, to tour, you know, we'll pay for renting equipment and pay for our flights. Everything else is just gravy. It's a good time. Let's go. Let's go hang out in Europe for two weeks. And so that's what we did. And that was kind of the the start of us playing as Amberetta again more regularly. Um, we still haven't toured since then. Like we haven't done any extended beyond like two or three days in the States since then. But um, but that was probably the last tour we did. And it was through Europe and the UK. And it was super fun. You know, it was kind of a re- reminder of, you know, the old days at that point. And um reminded us that we were definitely older and out of, out of shape and out of practice, but that we really missed it and enjoyed it, you know? So like, again, just kind of reframe, like we should do this more often. If we have opportunities, they're only going to, they're only going to be coming to us for so much longer. Like we should, we should just grab hold of them when we can. And so, you know, typically if people reach out and are like, we're coming through town, would you guys want to play or we're playing nearby? Would you want to come up or down? Um, you know, especially if they're friends that we've known, since the nineties, like, you know, the bouncing souls we played with a couple of times recently, hot water music was actually the last show we played was us strike anywhere in hot water music, um, in Richmond, but things like that, you know, so we played locally more than anywhere else in the last 10 years, but, but still only doing that once or twice a year, you know, last year was right before the pandemic, right? Yeah, that was, that was a lot of people's last show here locally at least. And, and I think even like those shows, the shows were crazy and they were so much fun. And again, it was like the old days, you know, just all old friends. It was just like the nineties all over again. So it was, it was killer, but we also had a lot of people traveling from like all over the country to see that specific lineup. And, you know, I think being in Richmond had something to do with it too. Like, you know, there was a big nostalgia factor, which scares me a little bit, (laughs) but um, just thinking that that's maybe that's the next phase of, of this band is like nostalgia. I hope not, but 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, but you know, it brought a lot of people from all over the country to Richmond for a show for two nights. And, um, I think, you know, just a couple weeks later, you know, the whole world was shutting down. So it was, it was a lot of people's last show and, and it's, it's, it's been a year. It's actually, it was a year ago last week. And, um, you know, so to see all the reminders on social media and people start posting things about, you know, that being their last show, it's, it's been, it's, you know, kind of nice. Again, it's just nice to have that moment with, with a whole lot of people, um, oh, yeah. and being able to kind of experience that, you know, and, and to miss that or reflect back on it and, and hope that we get to do it again someday soon. We did a little reunion show for like some of the kids yeah. that played it, like the St. Edwards crew. Yep. And it's, it, it's amazing. Um, how deep this stuff goes into people's lives, like music, you know, I was, t- I was talking to a friend of mine and she was just talking about how music has, you know, it's so powerful. Like what she like, it was weird. She said something to me like, well, I mean, you, you get it was something like you get to help people or something cause you're a musician. And I, it was weird cause I just, as a musician and being around musicians, like I just, never, I hadn't thought about it like that in a long time it was just so pure what you say. I was just kind of like, Whoa. Um, but like, that's, that is really something that's really cool. And, and I think, you know, playing a lot, you kind of get pulled away from that, but like, it just really ties deeply into everyone's lives. Like music does. I mean, even into our own, like, I mean, half of my memories are probably tied around, you know, songs I was listening to at the time or like, you know, if not shows I was going to, um, and it's so cool to be able to uh, provide that for folks and like see that. And and when you're seeing people traveling, you know, it's definitely <laughs> done that at some level for them. So I, I know that's got to feel yeah. good to see that coming in. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, I mean, going back to like the St. Edwards reunion that you guys did, like even just like that moment. And to your point, it's like St. Edwards was, you know, a church hall that had shows fairly regularly back in like the early or, you know, the mid nineties, we were all playing in that church and to go back into that setting and see some of the same bands again, many years later, you know, it's just like, it's, it's kind of reliving that moment. So it's like, I think for a lot of us, especially the age that we all are now, it's like, it's, there's a, there's a whole lot to kind of live there, you know, or unpack there. It's like, you get to re-experience something that was really, really important to you when you were younger. A lot of us are also bringing our kids and mm-hmm. introducing them to something that was really important to us. And it's now becoming important to them and collectively important because you're sharing something with your kids. So it's like on so many different levels, like these moments have so much like just meaning. And, and yeah, again, to your point, it's like reflecting back on, this band, this song, where was I in that moment? What was I going through? What was I feeling like, you know, that's, it's a pretty powerful thing to be able to carry all of that through, you know, decades of time and trace it all back to a song, whether you created it or not, whether you were a fan of it or the creator of it and therefore giving that to someone else. Like it's just to think that you're part of that bigger ecosystem of like things and events and you know how many different people you're touching in a moment that you may never even realize happened but that one person in the back of the room is taking that moment with them for the rest of their lives you know and and sharing that some you know 10 years later at the reunion show you know so 
it's just super cool to think that you're just one small part in that bigger picture, you know? This concludes our interview with Rob Huddleston. I would like to thank Rob for taking the time to talk with me. You can follow Rob and Amberetta on Instagram at Amberetta. You can find this podcast and more like them on our website, variousthingspodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Spotify by searching Various Things. Thanks for listening.